Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you on this spring day. I think today is the first, the first day of spring. I'm not 100% sure. It feels like it, so, so we'll go with that. It's uh, always nice to hear the birds chirping before the sun gets up. It lifts the spirits a little bit, and it is a great day to gather together with God's people to worship Him. Amen? Amen. Well, would you uh, pray with me as we come to God's Word? Our Lord and our God, we thank you. As we gather, we have the rich joy and privilege of hearing the words that you have inspired Lord, throughout history, through your chosen authors, Lord, that you would deliver to us a book of all things, Lord, a book that contains your perfect word, your message to us, your perfect revelation of yourself, of our condition, and of the redemption you have provided for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that as we come to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount today, that you would be with us. Lord, Jesus' words here are challenging to us. Uh, Lord, but they are so good for us. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us not to look to ourselves in fulfilling these things, but to look to Christ and to know that we cannot do any of the things Jesus tells us today apart from your Spirit's work in us. And Lord, that comes down to even hearing the words of Christ. Please open our ears, Lord. Help us not just to hear the word, but to do it by your power. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to uh, say only that which aligns with your word and only that which glorifies you and helps your people. Uh, please, Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, making uh, nice and slow progress uh, as we go. So we should be done with the Sermon on the Mount probably around summertime. So we still have, uh, still have quite a ways left, but Jesus says a lot of things that we need to take some time looking at. So Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Have you ever heard it said, uh, maybe you've said it yourself, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you ever heard that phrase before? I remember about 10 years ago, there was a very popular YouTube video that came out. It was called, Why I Hate Religion and uh, Love Jesus. And I got 35 million views. Very popular video, right? It was, uh, it was all the rage. Maybe you have seen it. Um, I, and I appreciate what the video was trying to do. Right? It was trying to show that Christianity really is, at its heart, about a relationship with God through Christ. And that is a beautiful reality that we can never forget. But at the same time, is it really true to say that Christianity is not a religion? Right? Webster's defines religion as the service and worship of God or commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance. Well, biblical Christianity meets those categories, right? But at the same time, Christianity is a unique religion because the service and worship that we offer to God doesn't gain us a relationship with Him, but it is born out of a relationship with Him. And as a result of the relationship that we have with God through Christ alone, we have external ways of worshiping God. Right? What we're doing this morning, for example, certain activities God's commanded, God has commanded us to do. Oftentimes, when we talk about religion, uh, we think of James 1.27. There is a good kind of, a, of religious activity. James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So Christianity, right, being a disciple of Jesus, is both a relationship and a religion. It's, it's both. There's the internal knowledge of God, 
right, as we experience a relationship with Him. And there's the external, active worship and service that we do as Christians, as we do what the Bible says. And this brings up an important question for us to consider. Who do we really perform our religious activities for? Who do we really perform these things for? Is it possible to do commanded acts of worship like singing, gathering together with the wrong motive? Whose approval are we really seeking as we engage in these religious activities that God commands? These are some of the questions that Jesus is going to address in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're approaching this morning. Now we are going to be doing something a little bit different with the text here than usual. Normally we take one little chunk and we go all the way through it. Now we are going to do that, but we're doing something slightly different. So as we look at verse 1, Jesus is going to make a big statement here for us. Right? We'll, we'll see that in a minute. And then he gives us a couple examples of that statement. And I don't want to give too much away before we read it, of course. We're going to go verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump all the way down to verses 16 through 18. Now, in between there, you see the Lord's Prayer. We're going to come back to the Lord's Prayer next week. And the reason being is because verses 1 through 6 and verses 16 through 18 are all talking about the same thing. So they fit together to address thematically. So again, we're not going to skip the Lord's Prayer entirely. We're going to come back to it next week. So let us read our text, read 1 through 6, and then jump down to verse 16. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We'll jump down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus essentially deals with two things here, two big points. First, we're going to look at the practice and reward of hypocritical religion. And second, we're going to look at the practice and reward of humble religion. Jesus is comparing these two things in our text. So let's jump to verse 1 as we look at this first point here. Jesus gives us this big overarching statement. Right? He, he's changing gears. He, he's no longer explaining the true meaning of the law like we saw with retaliation, loving your enemies, lust, anger, adultery, those things. But he is now beginning to discuss issues of religious activity. And for the Jew living in Jesus' time, these were questions of utmost importance. Verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. 
This is the controlling statement of the section we're looking at here today. It's a very important statement that Jesus is going to go on to expand in the following verses. Now, Jesus warns us, right, that our religious activity should be done for the right reason, not the wrong reason. And it's that last phrase there, in order to be seen by them, that is key. It's not the public practice of righteousness that Jesus is targeting here. It's the motive of public religion and righteousness. It's the motive. Once again, Jesus goes to the heart. Right? Jesus addresses the reason and the goal that we have in our hearts when we pray, give, so on and so forth. Again, that's really brought out by that phrase, in order to be seen by them. That's the motive Jesus says we should not have. In other words, don't practice your religion or your faith to impress other people. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus gives us three examples of how that often happens in the text. We'll see in a minute uh, regarding giving, prayer, and fasting. But Jesus uses an important word in each of these sections. Maybe you picked up on it. Hypocrites. Right? Hypocrites. That's in the first sentence of each of these paragraphs. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. And this word in the Greek usually referred to stage actors, uh, people who would put on a mask to deceive their audience. Actors are concerned primarily about the reaction and response of their audience. They offer a performance accordingly. Uh, the heart of hypocritical religion is similar. It's similar. Practicing righteousness, a religious activity, to be seen by others. Right? Putting on an act for the applause of an audience. And this kind of religious practice, Jesus says in verse 1, has no reward from God. And Jesus again gives us three examples of how this takes place and the ways in which uh, such kind of hypocrisy does not receive reward from God. And the first example is in verse 2. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. This is the first example, giving to the needy. Now, giving to the needy in Israel was commanded by God. It was a good thing to do. I take God's command in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. God told the people, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Deuteronomy 15. And there's many other passages that commanded the Israelites to do the same thing. So Jesus is not critiquing giving to the needy here. And, and in fact, he seems to assume his disciples will give to the needy. Right? He says, when you do this, the issue arises in what Jesus says next. Jesus says, don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites in the streets or the synagogues, that they may be praised by others. Now, Jesus is speaking figuratively here. There's no record of trumpets actually being blown by the very religious people of the day, right? He, he, he's using an illustration. We use the phrase, toot my own horn. That's basically what Jesus is saying. It's the same kind of idea, right? The point is clear. Don't be like the hypocrites who give to the poor and then advertise about it. And Jesus mentions the synagogues and the streets here where this was taking place. These are public places. There's a lot of people worshiping in the synagogue. There's a lot of people buying things or walking on the streets. Uh, this is a, a real example of what this might look like in Jesus' day. There were a lot of beggars that would line the streets and ask for money. And, and suppose that I, a good religious person, would walk up to one and give him some money. Here's some food for you, some money. 
and he thanked me, right? And I said, oh, I'm so happy to be abundantly generous to you. Don't worry about it. I just want to help my brother in need at the top of my voice so everyone around me could hear what I'm doing and praise me. That's the motive right there, giving to the needy publicly to be seen and praised by other people. And there's one thing that's very interesting about this. That word praised there in verse 2, it's the same word used to describe the worship of God, from which we get the word doxology. We, we, we sometimes translate it as glorify. These individuals are performing the commanded act of giving to the needy. But they're doing it so that they are glorified instead of God. That they receive praise instead of God. That is the heart of hypocritical religion. And look what Jesus says at the end of verse 2. They have received their reward. They received their reward. In, in what? In the praises of man. Verse 1 tells us they receive no reward from God. God hates hypocritical man-centered religion. Even if it's doing what he commands, right? God deeply considers the motive. Is it about our glory or his? That's the question. Is it about our glory or his? And Jesus gives us a second example. Jumping down to verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, Jesus' words follow a similar pattern. When we pray, we're not to be like the hypocrites. Again, it is good to pray. It's assumed that Jesus' disciples will be people of prayer. And the Old Testament, the Jewish law is full of commands to pray and examples of prayer. The issue is not with prayer. And the issue isn't even with praying publicly. That's not the problem. Right? What Jesus says in verse 5 is again, the motive, the hypocrites, right? Uh, those practicing hypocritical religion are standing and praying again in the synagogues and street corners, those same public places, for what purpose? To be seen by others. It's the same motive, right? To be praised by others. They love to go and pray in public places to receive joy and satisfaction, right, from the praise and esteem of man. That's their motive in doing a good religious activity is for their own glory. Now the Jews would pray three times a day at least, and these individuals would make sure that when it was prayer time, they'd be found in public places. Oh, 12 o'clock's coming up. Better get to the marketplace, right? Better get to the synagogue so that I can be right ready to put on a show. Right, even in prayer, which should be to God and God alone, these individuals are primarily concerned with making an impression on those who hear their words. It's really just an act. I'm pretending I'm praying to God, but really I'm giving an oration for the sake of those who hear. They, these people would pray loudly and ostentatiously to be thought of as very holy people. Right? Very holy people. These are not sincere prayers that they're performing, just for the approval of others. But again, God is not fooled by this either. God knows the heart. You can't fleece God with a really good-sounding prayer, right? He's no fool. He knows everything. And God hates insincere prayers. He hates hypocritical religion. That's why Jesus says, they have received their reward. Again, it is the praise of man, fickle and fleeting. That's all that these people will get for their prayers. 
Others might hear their prayers, but God does not. And finally, our third example Jesus gives us of hypocritical religion is in verse 16 with fasting. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Now, the question of whether Christians should fast today is, is not really the purpose of this text. Um, Jesus does seem to assume that his disciples will fast to some degree and in some way. And again, this is a common Jewish practice for holidays such as Yom Kippur, right? the Day of Atonement. Fasting was also a response to show repentance for sin or mourning for grief. Uh, often they overlapped. But the Pharisees, those that Jesus is kind of targeting here, they would do voluntary fasts on Monday and Thursday to show just how religious and pious they were. Right? These were not fasts commanded by God, but right, we're going to go to the next level and do extra fasting to be really holy. That was their mindset. And Jesus tells us again, if we do fast, we should not be like the hypocrites. What they would do is they would disfigure their faces. They would twist them up to show how hungry they were from fasting so much. Or they would put white ash on their face to appear pale so that others would go, wow, you don't look good. You look like you're going to pass out. It's just from all my fasting, right? It was an act. It was an act. And once more, we see the same motive, that they may be seen by others. Right? These people are not fasting to grow in self-control. They're not fasting to practice self-denial. They're not fasting to depend more upon the Lord. They're fasting to get attention and to be thought highly of. And here too, Jesus says, they'll get the reward they seek. Right? They'll get the admiration of others. And all that does is inflate the ego, pride, and God does not bless this kind of fasting. It's offensive to him. It's offensive to him. God hates hypocritical religion. Now, in these examples here, these, these uh, hypocrites here, Jesus is primarily referring to the Pharisees. But even Christians can act this way, trying to get attention for how devoted or holy right, we may be. Uh, just recently, many practiced Ash Wednesday, uh, somewhere in the middle of Lent right now. Now, this is a time, right, you may or may not be familiar with Lent, but on Ash Wednesday, people go, they get the sign of the cross and ashes on their forehead, and during Lent, they choose something to give up as a fast. Um, and, you know, whether or not that's a good thing to do or not is not the point of this text. But what you see on social media are posts all about, I went and got my ashes today. Here's what I'm giving up for Lent this year, Right? The only reason you would put that on Facebook is for attention from other people. Right? That's today's marketplace or, or synagogue, you could say. That's today's public arena, right? Christians can do the same thing, but it can happen in other ways. Sometimes we boast about our quiet times, how much we pray. Sometimes we brag about how spiritual we are, how in touch with the supernatural we may be. Sometimes Christians can be very quick to say, well, I don't watch that show. I don't do those things. I don't read those books just to make clear how pure and holy they are. It may be good not to watch that show or read that book. But why are you telling somebody that? Is the question. What's the motive behind saying that to another person? I've done some of these things myself. Maybe some of you have as well. We have to be real, brothers and sisters. Our sinful nature craves the approval of other people. Right? That's part of our sinful flesh. Is It craves the praises of man. It relishes receiving the glory that should go to God alone. The question that we have to ask is, do I indulge my sinful nature by practicing my righteousness in order to be seen by other people? 
Do I do the things God has commanded because I want praises from man? We have to ask ourselves that. And it is good for us even, right, we don't want to get morbidly introspective. But it is good for us to evaluate our motives from time to time. Right? Because the reality is we do deal with indwelling sin. We have to be self-aware to some degree by God's help. Right? It's so easy for us to do good things and pat ourselves on the back for how righteous we are. Right? That's the same motive here. This is hypocritical religion that Jesus is, is painting a picture of. And he says, don't go near that at all. Don't do that. Beware of that. Watch out for it. Beware. And Jesus is going to, in the next verses that follow these examples, he's going to lay out for us what true humble religion looks like as a disciple of Christ. And this brings us to our second point, the practice and reward of humble religion. The practice and reward of humble religion. And we've seen that hypocritical religion is all about pleasing people, right? But what is the nature of true humble religion? Why should we practice our faith, right? For who are we, are we doing that? Who are these acts of service really for? As we get ready to answer these questions, looking at Jesus' words here, I want to point out another word that's repeated here in each of these paragraphs, and that is the word secret. That is the word secret. Jesus uses this word secret to describe the way we should approach true and humble religion in relationship with God. Secret. Now, I know it was a long time ago, but some of you may think of Matthew 16, right? Matthew 5, 16, where we're supposed to let our light shine, right, in the world. But now Jesus is, uh, is telling us to keep it a secret. Is this a contradiction here? What's going on? Well, no, it's not a contradiction. We are to let our light shine in the world to God's glory, which Jesus is very clear about, right, in our good works. But we should do them as if God is the only one watching, right? And that's really what Jesus means here by this word secret. It's not so much private and hidden, but secret. Doing things for God's, God's eyes, so to speak. God's glory, God's approval alone. And again, Jesus is really looking at the motive here. And what we're going to see is that humble religion that pleases God is primarily concerned with just that, pleasing God, not man. It's concerned with receiving reward from God and not man. So let's go back to our, our, our three examples here, going back to verse 3 as we revisit giving. How should we approach these things humbly? Jumping back up to verse 3, Jesus says, instead of being like the hypocrites, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What kind of motive should we have when we give to the needy? Well, according to Jesus, we should not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing so that our giving may be in secret. What does Jesus mean by this? It's a familiar expression, but what does it mean? Again, Jesus is not speaking literally, of course, but he's using an illustration, a figure of speech. Jesus says that our giving to the needy should be so secret that not even our left hand knows what our right hand is doing, that our, our left hand has no idea that our right hand is giving money. In other words, our right hand's not calling attention to itself, right? When you give to the needy, the only people that need to know about it are you and God, right? The needy individual doesn't even necessarily need to know it's from you, right? It's between you and God. Now, does this mean that you can't give to the needy if there's other people around? 
Right? Does this mean if you're walking down the street and somebody says, hey man, do you have a couple, couple dollars for a sandwich that, you know, if you're with a friend, you have to send your friend down the street so you can give the guy a couple dollars? No, of course not. Sometimes giving to the needy will, will be seen by others. It's just a reality. Again, Jesus is speaking figuratively. The point is this. Does it matter to you if it's seen by others? Does it matter to you if it's seen by others? Do you feel a swell of pride right when your friend sees you give somebody a, a couple dollars or, or help the needy? Right? Or are you not even concerned about them? Are you concerned about God's eyes? That's the question, right? That's Jesus' point here. And look what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, do this so that your giving may be in secret, so that our Father who sees in secret and who knows the motives of our hearts will reward us, right? God rewards giving to the needy when it is done out of true love from a motive that seeks to glorify God. Giving to the needy is a good religious activity. It is a part of our worship in a way. And worship is ultimately about God. So giving to the needy shouldn't be done for the eyes and applause of others, but for the eyes and reward that God gives. Now the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 appealed to the Corinthian church to send financial support to the needy church in Jerusalem. Let's turn there for a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul asks the Christians in Corinth, who were very wealthy, to send financial support to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And his appeal runs along the same lines of what Jesus says here. Starting in verse 6, right, when we think about the reward God gives for giving to the needy. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And we'll stop there. As Christians, we don't believe in karma, right? We reject that idea. We believe that God blesses his people for their good works. But what is the blessing here that Paul lays out for us? Is it, hey, if you give to the needy, God's going to send a million dollars to your mailbox? No. No, Paul says two things quite clearly. How does God reward giving to the needy? With abundant grace and with provision to do more good works. Right? So brothers and sisters, when you give to the needy, do it as an act of worship before God and of love to your fellow man. God does bless and reward that richly, but we're not doing it for the applause or praise of other people. It's between us and the Lord. Let's look at the second example here, prayer. It'll be down to verse 6. Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer, of course, is a central part of the Christian life. And, and it was a central part of Jewish culture as well. As I mentioned before, the Jews would pray three times a day. And the early church continued this tradition of frequent daily prayer. It's good for us to pray. But how does humble religion approach prayer? How does a disciple of Jesus approach prayer? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 6 that when we pray, we should go into our room, shut the door, and pray to our Father who is in secret. Again, is Jesus speaking literally? Right? Is Jesus saying that if there's other people around, you can't pray? Right? If you're not in that one room in your house, 
don't pray. No, of course not. He is speaking figuratively here. Jesus' point uh, is not to be taken literally and strictly. Right? Elsewhere in the Bible, we see quite clearly that there are times to pray publicly with other people. Uh, right here at church, we pray together at our fellowship groups. We, pray, we have a prayer meeting coming up next week. It's good to pray with your family. These are good things to do, and they are right. The point is not the location of the prayer. The point is that we should be praying as if God was the only one listening. Again, that word secret comes into play. It shouldn't matter what other people think about our prayers. We're not talking to them. We're not talking to them, right? We should pray for God's ears alone. Again, secret, here's that word. It's not literal, but it's getting at the motive of our heart. Have you ever been tempted to pray really eloquently? You're like, man, i got to make this sound good. i got to put in all these you know, four-syllable words. Right? Have you ever been tempted to that? Have you ever been scared to pray around other people because you're afraid of what they might think about the words that you use or what you say? These are, these are two of the same, right, different, different symptoms, same root issue. Right? Could it be that you are more concerned about others' evaluation of your prayers, for better or for worse, than God's? Right? Man, we got to think about that motive. Prayer is directed to God alone. It's for God alone, for His ears alone. And according to the end of verse 6, this kind of sincere prayer, made from the secret places of the soul to God, regardless of who hears, is what pleases Him, what He rewards. And how does God reward humble and sincere prayer? Well, He hears it and He answers it according to His good will. Psalm 145, 18 through 19 says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Right? God sees right through a hypocritical prayer made to impress other people. But God loves the humble prayers of His children with, with whatever words are used. Right? We don't judge the prayer of a child for being simple, do we? Well, God does not judge ours for being simple either. God loves to answer the prayers of his children when they're offered in sincerity. And finally, let's look at Jesus' last example, fasting. In verses 17 through 18, fasting. Jesus says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, how are we to approach fasting as disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 17 that instead of making a big show and drawing attention to the fact that you're fasting, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. These were common hygiene practices of the day, right? You would, you would put oil on your hair and you would clean the dirt off your face. And this would make a person look clean and healthy uh, in comparison to the sickly appearance of the Pharisees, right, that they would put on for attention. So in other words, Jesus says, when you fast, don't look like you're fasting. Don't advertise it. Don't make a big deal about it. Because verse 18 tells us the purpose of fasting is to be not seen by the world, but it's an act of worship between you and God. That's it. Right? To the outside world, it doesn't need to be evident that you're fasting. They don't need to know. Only God needs to know. Again, does this mean that if you choose to fast and somebody asks if you want to grab a a meal with them, you want to get lunch, that you have to clam up and just take the fifth, right? You can't answer that question and you just, you just walk away. Well, no, that's, that's not the point. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. 
right? It's okay to say something like, yeah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm fasting today, but maybe next week we could, we could grab lunch. Don't make a big deal about it. You don't, need to, you don't need to go on and on and on about how you're fasting, so on and so forth, right? It's not a government secret, you know, that's, that's confidential or classified, but just don't make a big deal about it. It's between you and God. That's it. That's it. And Jesus says the same thing he says, or he has said in the previous two times, that when we approach something like fasting this way, as an act of worship not done for man's approval, but right to please God, then God will reward that. He will bless that. Right? If, if you're seeking to grow in self-control by the Spirit's help, and you fast to deny your body things, to grow in self-control from pure motives, Lord, I want to glorify you in my fast. Well, then God will bless you in that. He's not going to deny you self-control. Right? That's a fruit of the Spirit. As we look at these three examples of giving, prayer, fasting, as we consider Jesus' comparison of hypocritical versus humble religion, um, it really boils down to a pretty simple message. Pretty simple message. You can pursue man's approval and reward, or you can pursue God's approval and reward. But you can't have both. You can't have both. Right? Each one of us must, must say, well, this is the one I'm going to pursue. Hypocritical religion or humble religion. You and I will either seek to be glorified by man or seek to glorify God before men. And it's, it's a straightforward message, but it is challenging for our hearts sometimes. Have you been practicing Christianity for man's approval? Have you had those moments right, where you go, man, I really hope I can, you know, I can appear like a really good Christian right here. I want to be thought of well by my, my brothers or sisters in Christ. I want them to think highly of me as a Christian. I want to impress them, right? Have you been practicing Christianity for man's approval? If so, you have forgotten the central message of Christianity. You have forgotten the central message of God's true and humble religion. Christianity is not about becoming a better person. Christianity is not about reaching the apex right, of, of piety. Christianity is not about being the best Christian around. Christianity is not primarily centered on you and me and our religious activities. You want to know the role that, that we play in Christianity? We've all been cast for the same part. We play the part of the sinful, wretched, prideful, selfish people who want to be the gods of our own lives. That's the part that you and I play in all of this. Christianity, you see, is all about how God, knowing our sinfulness, loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for the very sinfulness and selfishness that defines our rebellion against him. But Christianity is all about how God is glorified in his gracious work of redemption and salvation of sinners. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. Not what you can do for God. Not what you can do to impress other people. But what God has already done for you through Christ. And the gospel, keeping this in the center, is really the antidote to hypocritical religion. It really is the cure, at least three ways. I'm sure there's more you could think of. But three ways for you, right, as we close, that the gospel is the antidote to hypocritical religion. The first is 
The gospel reveals that your sin isn't a secret. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you have acknowledged publicly that you're a sinner. We've all done that, right? It's our big shared secret, right? That we all know. It's, it's not a secret at all. And more than that, God knows about it. He's already sent Jesus to deal with it. Your brothers and sisters know about it. So if God's dealt with your sin, and if the fact that you're a sinner, and that I'm a sinner is public knowledge, there is no good reason to present yourself as better than you are. There's no good reason to play dress up. The gig's up, guys, right? <laughs> the truth is out there. The gospel frees us to be honest. Not to try to deceive people with hypocrisy. Number two, the gospel shows it's not about us. It's not about us. Worship, religious activity, is not about us. It's not even primarily about other people. It's about God. The gospel puts God front and center in everything. His glory becomes the ultimate priority that you and I must have. Because He's done what you and I can't. And He is worthy of that glory. As 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you've tasted God's grace and you know His goodness, there's no reason for you to seek approval. Right? There's no reason for you to steal God's glory. The one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Number three, finally, the gospel reveals that God is far better to serve than man. And that his love and goodness towards us is freely given in Christ. You have to work hard to impress other people, right? Their, their opinion of you goes up and down all the time based on your performance, right? That was a really good prayer yesterday, but I don't know what happened today, man. That was terrible, right? And when we disappoint other people, when we get their disapproval or displeasure, it crushes our egos. But this is not so with God. God does not accept us based on our own works. God does not accept us based on how hard or fervently we try to worship Him. God is not holding this, this standard that we cannot reach saying, keep jumping, keep jumping, keep trying. No, the gospel says you are accepted by God because of what Jesus has done. And when you trust in Christ, you receive His righteousness. End of story, case closed. The gospel says you don't need to try to earn God's love or approval like you do with other people who are fickle and changing and sinful. God is gracious and kind and loving. And he proves that to us at the cross. In the words of Christ himself, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There is no rest for your soul friend, in trying to please man. But there is rest in knowing that God is pleased with you for Christ's sake. That's where true rest is found. The gospel is the antidote to hypocritical religion. And the gospel is the beginning of humble religion. So brothers and sisters, what is the heart of your religion? What are your motives for what you do? with the gospel at the center of what we do and why we do it, knowing that God is the one that we live for, it becomes clear that our motive for everything, everything we do should be, as 1 Peter 4.11 says, that in everything 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him alone belong glory and dominion forever and ever. May that be the motive for what we do, whether it be giving, prayer, fasting, anything. May it be to put God's glory front and center. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the words of Christ today. And Lord, we know that uh, before you we are laid bare, that you know the motives of our hearts even better than we do. And so, Lord, we pray for your help. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to discern whether we do whatever we do, whether it be giving or singing or fasting or praying or worshiping or serving. Father, help us to discern where we do that for man's approval and where we do it for yours. And Father, we pray that you would help us to repent of those areas where we have fallen short, where we have sought man's applause rather than your glory. And our Lord, our hearts are comforted today to know that, Father, while there are times when we are hypocrites, that Christ never was. That every day of his life, he did all things to your glory. And that never once did he seek to please man more than you. And Father, we thank you that his righteousness in that is given to us as a gift. Father, please help us. Center us upon your glory and upon your gracious work of redemption in Christ. And help us to practice our faith, our discipleship to Christ with humility. For your eyes and your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.